1: The Bowery Boys, episode 108. Cable cars, trolleys, and monorails. Monorail. Monorail. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys.
2: Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com.
1: Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with a solo show this week, and in fact, the third part of our summer long miniseries, which we're calling Bowery Boys on the Go, where we take a chronological look at the various forms of public transportation that the city's used throughout its history to both get its citizens around town and between the boroughs. Now, before Tom and I dive headlong here into the creation of the New York City subway next week, I thought I'd look back at some forms of transportation within the city that aren't really with us anymore, methods which are still used to some extent in other cities, but were squeezed off the New York landscape mostly due to the efficiency of the subway and the overenthusiasm for the automobile. Now, these methods of transportation, the cable car, the electric streetcar or trolley, and the monorail, These all look pretty good to us today, I'd say. Rather attractive, I think, to city officials who are looking at it from the perspective of clean energy, New York's carbon footprint, or the environment. Before 1870, there was really only one way to power any sort of vehicle within the city, and that was, of course, by horsepower. Horses provided the engine for virtually every activity in New York City. They operated every vehicle— Simple carts and inner city freight to these large wheeled omnibuses, fire engines and funeral cars. New York's elite couldn't survive without horses. They pulled their private carriages through Central Park and pulled their coaches up to their upper Manhattan mansions. When they weren't being pulled by them, the rich raced them, a traditional pastime that New Yorkers took up at courses like the new Jerome Park racetrack, which opened in 1866 and was owned by a financier named August Belmont Sr., a man whose son will play a very prominent role in our very next podcast, by the way. Sometimes the rich took the reins themselves. Even Cornelius Vanderbilt and Jay Gould, two moguls we've mentioned before, were frequently known to use Upper Manhattan as their own private racetracks. But the most continual and stressful use of horses in the city was the horse-drawn streetcar, a large compartment or string of several compartments seating dozens of passengers and pulled along a rail that was embedded in the street. Now, as we mentioned last episode, the horse car basically ruled the roads since their debut in 1832 by the New York and Harlem Railroad. Because steam engines were prohibited from traveling into the heart of the city, this was clearly the most common way to travel besides walking. By the 1860s, you had over 30 individual streetcar lines in operation, who bought or oftentimes bribed themselves into franchise agreements with the city. For a passenger, this unregulated, Wild West arrangement could make traveling extremely frustrating, as you might have to sometimes transfer to three or four different streetcar lines just to get to your destination. And if certain streetcar lines were at war with each other, well, then they might even refuse to take transfers, and you'd have to pay another fare to get on another streetcar line. You could actually be broke by the time you got home. Now, none of this, of course, will sit well with you if you're an animal lover. By the mid-1870s, there were 40,000 horses on the dizzying, congested streets of New York. And that's not counting the sizable amount in Brooklyn and the other future boroughs. Life was extremely difficult for these animals. The average lifespan of a streetcar horse was four to five years with a 10 to 12 hour workday, sometimes longer, many poorly treated and kept in city stables that were crowded and unclean. They worked with few breaks on busy streets the whole day and would be very prone to accidents along the poorly cobblestoned streets or cross rails. One slip along an icy street might mean a broken leg, which for an old working horse, meant the end. In 1872, a horse influenza paralyzed all of America. In fact, it was an epizootic. Yes, that's right, an epizootic. I have never needed to use that word until now. An epizootic, which killed thousands of animals and literally stopped commerce in the city. Generally speaking, when an animal died, it was taken outside the cities, such as in the 1860s to a quote, over on West 38th Street, and then it was transferred to a rendering plant. Occasionally, horses would literally be left in the gutter. I could actually put up some old pictures on the blog of this, though I might spare you this particular grim image. It's kind of depressing. An animal's only real recourse, if you want to call it this, was the 15 to 35 pounds of manure that each animal left on the cobblestone streets each day, giving the streets of New York in the 1860s and 1870s a strong pungent scent of a dirty stable yes the perfume of old new york as they call it according to an 1866 citizens association report to the city the report cried quote the stench arising from these accumulations of filth is intolerable now in the late 1870s with the debut of the four elevated railroad lines along second third sixth and ninth avenues This took some travelers, of course, above the streets, above those smelly, congested streets. And all of this elevated system would prove popular. It would by no means solve the still-existing problem, which was still festering down there on the street. So how did the city get out of this stench? How did it get rid of all of this horsepower? Well, luckily, this is the late 19th century and the motherland of all inventions. So help is on the way here. The first idea was imported, oddly enough, from a city on the vast, unknown other coast of the United States. A city that two generations earlier had less than a thousand inhabitants, but had flourished, of course, during the gold rush. This would be San Francisco, of course. And in 1873, that city saw its very first cable car, utilizing large cables that were embedded into a street indentation that ran along the middle of the entire route of where the cable car was supposed to go. These cables were in constant movement, driven by a stationary steam engine on several points along the route. Drivers would simply detach their car from the cable when they actually wanted to make a stop. Now, this worked in San Francisco, naturally, because of all of the hills, but it also had this advantage of being a clean, horseless, and relatively smooth form of travel. So of course, New Yorkers had to try it. The first cable system in September of 1883 was actually a cable car slash steam locomotive hybrid system that ran along the newly opened Brooklyn Bridge monopolizing on the newness of the bridge the system was a smash hit between 1886 and 1887 for instance this cable car hybrid thing moved over 27 million people between the two cities of new york and brooklyn but this fad and for new york it was definitely a fad the fad wouldn't stop there by the 1890s all these sundry horse-drawn street rail routes had finally begun to cave into consolidation and coalesce into two competing companies the Metropolitan Traction Company, which pretty much dominated most of the west side of Manhattan, and the slightly less powerful Third Avenue Railway, which linked the east side with a near monopoly of routes to Upper Manhattan and the Annex District, also known today as Part of the Bronx. Both these horse rail companies would dabble in this cable car technology. Now, the wealthier and Tammany Hall-connected Metropolitan Traction Company They had three separate operating cable lines, including a $12 million enterprise that ran along the length of Broadway. Now, all of these different cable lines started at the Battery and stretched up the length of Manhattan along Broadway, 7th Avenue, and Lexington Avenue. In order to get these cables in the road, of course, the streets had to be ripped up. A frustrating annoyance, given that this was Broadway, these cables under the road would perpetually be in motion fueled by massive basement engines and buildings that would be along the route. One of these cable buildings is, thankfully, very much with us today. It's called, surprise, the Cable Building. It was built in 1893 at the corner of Broadway and Houston. It should tell you something about the moneymen of the Metropolitan Traction Company, that they were able to hire the famous architectural firm McKim, Meat & White to design this nine-story building. It had to be specially built with a very thick steel frame to house the engines and these constantly rumbling and churning twenty six feet long wheels which would be tugging at the cables today, Of course, the rooms that once powered new york 's Broadway cable system now houses one of the city 's best known art house
2: theaters, the Angelica Film Center in the decades before the Civil war slavery 's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus.
1: The heart of New York wasn't the only place for cable cars in the late 1880s and 1890s. The 3rd Avenue Railway would start a line catering to the thriving neighborhood of Harlem, At a pricier $0.25 versus the standard $0.05 fare, it was seen as very premium. Brooklyn, of course, got its own cable car system in 1887. Now, in New York, along the avenues, the cable cars, up to sometimes 60 on a busy day, would whisk by at over 20 miles an hour, much faster and cleaner, of course, than any horse could possibly do on a crowded street. Of course, there was a dark side to this efficient speed. Engineers sometimes sped up as the car swept around a corner, such as the one the Broadway line took when it got up to 14th Street. Now, of course, Union Square interrupts Broadway at that point, so the cable line had to travel along the southern end of the park, then take a hard curve to continue up Broadway. As a result, that southwest corner became known as Dead Man's Curve, the location of dozens of traffic accidents, often involving the cable car and an unfortunate horse cart or maybe a female shopper entering the ladies' mile shopping district here. This corner, of course, would have an almost infamous number of accidents, but of course there would be accidents everywhere along the cable lines, in particular with people and horses getting caught in those slots that are in the middle of the street, Add to that the extreme cost of operating the lines, and it's not surprising that most everybody scrapped these cable lines by the start of the new century, especially since by that time, another travel innovation had hit New York, the electrified, horseless streetcar, or the trolley. Now, this innovation comes to us from Richmond, Virginia, in 1888, from a naval engineer named Frank Sprague, who innovated the first successful electric streetcar to be used for city transportation. His car used an electrified overhead wire that propelled cars along tracks in the road. His invention was so successful, I guess you could consider this success, that within the year, he was completely bought out by his boss, Thomas Edison. Now, believe it or not, this trolley idea didn't initially seem very compatible for Manhattan for a very peculiar reason, and one that involves an event that occurred in March of that very same year of the trolley's creation— the devastating storm known as the Great Blizzard of 1888, the worst snowstorm to ever hit New York, and one which killed almost 200 people in the city and ground the entire metropolis to a halt. Obviously, of course, the elevated trains and the horse cars were completely useless, but the real reason, actually, is wires. Before 1888, all sorts of different wires, telephone wires, electricity wires... They were actually lifted above the heads of New Yorkers on poles along the street. During the blizzard, most of these wires were blown over and destroyed, leading to a devastating communication blackout. And so afterwards, the city mandated that all wires needed to be buried underground. And thank God, I can't imagine what the city would look like with a bunch of telephone poles. So that's no problem. Put all the wires underground. But then you had this new thing, this trolley, the cleanest, easiest form of public transportation to date. How do you apply this innovation when it required an overhead wire? Well, inventors soon came up with lots of different ideas, exploring the idea of placing electrical conduits underground in Manhattan, with Sprague himself actually electrifying a 4th Avenue rail line in this manner. Throughout the 1890s, those two major horse car companies I'd mentioned, Metropolitan Traction Company and the Third Avenue Railway, they began underfoot electrification of all of their street rail lines. The transformation of New York into a trolley town would be so complete that by July 29, 1917, so basically less than 30 years after the trolley was even invented, July 29, 1917, the last line in Manhattan to Use horsepower to use an old fashioned horse the route along Bleecker Street would finally be closed for good. So these electric cars proved very popular and cheaper to run in Manhattan, but they actually made a bigger splash in Brooklyn, where the population was more dispersed, and street development there was less confined to a very rigid street grid. Brooklyn didn't have the same rules as Manhattan, and so they could install trolleys with these overhead wires. There were soon literally hundreds of individual lines, creating both chaos and competition, Companies raced to get to their destinations quicker, so much so that there were, of course, many, many accidents with people racing to escape these speeding trolleys. In fact, Brooklynites would affectionately be referred to by their neighbors across the water as trolley dodgers. In 1891, when a local baseball field would be built between these two lines of trolley tracks, the home team playing there would actually be called the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers. They would, of course, soon shorten that to simply the Brooklyn Dodgers. Now, Brooklyn actually holds a couple more interesting footnotes in the history of early electrified public transportation. Just a couple years earlier, in 1892, a man by the name of Granville Woods, who was a prolific African-American inventor from Ohio and is actually sometimes referred to as the, quote, Black Edison, well, Granville displayed something called a multiple distribution station system out on a test track in Coney Island. Basically, a streetcar traveled along a track by way of electromagnetic induction, essentially a wireless transfer of electricity. Although this idea was never fully developed at the time, Woods would then go on to craft improvements of another invention, an electrified third rail system that would, of course, end up having very long lasting consequences being used as it is in the underground subway. Now, it was out here in Coney Island while we're here that we get one more curious attempt at rail travel, the introduction of the monorail. Of all the forms of transportation that I've mentioned, you can actually still find an operational monorail in New York City. It's at the Bronx Zoo, where they use a monorail high above its Wild Asia exhibit. Now, right up until, like, airtime, right before I started, like, Two minutes before I started recording, I was going to add that the air train that's out in Queens at JFK Airport is also a monorail. However, that's actually considered, quote, a people mover system and not an actual monorail. So, Coney Island at one time did have a monorail. And not only that, it was a bicycle monorail. This curious system was designed in 1888. So, essentially, just as New York was frenzied in their attempts to switch to cable cars and electrified cars, and it was probably designed with the same objectives in mind. Now, this line, the Boynton Bicycle Monorail, it traveled just a short distance from Coney Island to the center of town in Graveson, so a little less than two miles. To give you a description of what this strange device looked like, I quote from a report in the New York Times regarding the vehicle's inaugural ride. Quote, the sight of a locomotive running on one immense driving wheel eight feet in diameter on a single rail and kept in an upright position by wheels running on each side of the guide rail above was witnessed by several hundred persons, unquote. This is a very, very weird looking device, essentially the look of a locomotive, except with one large single wheel out front. The compartments for this monorail were, of course, naturally very small. Constant repairs of this machine and the attractiveness of other forms of travel ensured only a small life for the bicycle monorail, which was essentially out of service by 1892. A few years later, another modest sort of monorail launched in 1910 and offered to take passengers between two areas of the Bronx on the Pelham Park and City Island Railroad. Now, this stumpy little line had a, quote, yellow cigar-shaped car. According to news reports, and was hastily built to attract city dwellers to these beach lined northern parts of the Bronx. On its first trip, filled with passengers, the car fell over, causing dozens of injuries. I'm amazed, given this disaster, that the monorail even lived to survive another afternoon, much less four more years. But eventually, it too succumbed to a better operated trolley line that would be run along the same route. New Yorkers wouldn't see another monorail until the 1960s, when a campy, playful version of one debuted at Lake Amusement during the 1964-65 World's Fair in Queens. So by the first quarter of the 20th century, the streets of New York would be dominated by the electric streetcar. But of course, here in New York today, there are no streetcars, even as other cities have them and have incorporated into revitalized downtowns and a great draw for tourists. There is a recent attempt to get trolleys back on the streets of Brooklyn. In fact, efforts of the Brooklyn Historical Railway Association will, if they can work through all of the governmental red tape, get trolleys back on the road, linking Red Hook to downtown Brooklyn. Those are still in the planning stages. Tom and I in a later show will actually discuss the demise of the trolley, and for that matter, the demise of the elevated railroad and the demise of most of the ferry systems that once operated in New York Harbor. We'll do that on the final chapter of our Bowery Boys on the Go. But in the next episode, in two weeks, we'll talk about the birth of a transit form that probably best defines New York City, a form that improves upon the trolley by disappearing from the city streets entirely. So please, please tune in for that one. We've been meaning to do this next show since we first thought about doing a podcast in the first place. I can literally say this show is three years in the making. So we hope you make it back for that one. Our blog is, of course, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. I will have photographs of every single one of the modes of transportation that I discussed here on the show. Like I said, the new show is in two weeks. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.
0: You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter. Or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary.